0: The words I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Acts 1, 1 through 11. will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us according to your word. That you would give us guidance. And that you would give us resolve in our pursuit of you. Lord, You know the things that occupy our minds. The anxieties, the fears, the distractions, the hopes, the longings. Lord, I pray that You would direct our attention back to You. Lord, that You would use Your Word to strengthen us. And to guide us and to help us in our life as we seek to pursue you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you guys know, as a church, we're facing a lot of change. A lot of change going on. Uh, new leadership. Uh, going to a new location. Uh, we have new life in our midst, and also death. And change can be fa- painful. In some circumstances, it can relieve pain. And generally speaking, though, most people are uncomfortable with change because it brings with it great uncertainty. And this, this is increasingly the case as we grow older because uh, continuity brings a sense of Peace. Whereas change tends to just bring disruption into our lives. And change is especially difficult when it's unexpected, when it's sudden, when it comes from out of nowhere. And this first section in Acts chapter 1 really is all about unexpected change. It serves as a transition from the Gospels to the work of the apostles in the book of Acts. In Luke's gospel narrative, he recorded everything that Jesus had done and taught. He wanted people to know that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised. And in his narrative of Acts, Luke's going to explain what the apostles did and taught. So there's this transition from Jesus and what he did and taught to the apostles and what they did in his name after he left them. And the critical change that takes place is that Jesus leaves them. And he's doing it a second time because it was just days before that he had left them when he was crucified. He, of course, rose again, he was stuck around for 40 days. And then he left them again. And the fact that Jesus doesn't permanently stick around and establish his physical rule upon the earth is quite a shock to the disciples. You know, it doesn't shock us who've been around for 2000 years since then, and it, it still has not arrived. But this is not what was expected at the time. I mean, nobody expected that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to have to suffer and die even after Jesus told them that he would. And after he rose again and his work was finished, okay, that shock was behind him. So they just assumed, okay, now is the time. Now is the day when you will finally establish your kingdom because you've died, you've risen. So now all those promises that you gave to Israel can be fulfilled. That's why the disciples ask in verse 6, well, is now the time? And what this section in Acts clarifies is that God actually planned that for there to be three major changes or stages in the coming of his kingdom. And these actually constitute an outline of the passage before us. The first stage was the Messiah would come and then be rejected by Israel. This is what allows access for people to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The second stage was the Spirit would be poured out upon the nations. And this is what actually gives the people their access into the kingdom. And then the the third stage would be the Messiah's return. And that would constitute, I should say will constitute, the official beginning of the kingdom. And these stages, again, constitute the outline of the passage before us. And you could think of these stages like... Getting tickets to an event. In the first stage, the event is scheduled. In the second stage, tickets are sold. Then they're purchased. And then in the third stage, you actually get to enjoy the event. You, the event is held. And that's what you have here. You have the promise being made. There, There's an access. Then the people are granted access. And then they're told the beginning is yet still to come. Let's look at that first point. The Messiah is rejected by Israel. Luke writes in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Luke tells Theophilus, that's the man he's writing to, that his objective in his gospel was to explain everything that Jesus had done and teach. God wanted to make it abundantly clear who the Messiah was. And so Luke records all the signs that gave evidence to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is why it records in the gospels there was such interest for Jesus to do signs to perform signs people wanted evidence are you really the messiah speaking of becoming messiah the prophet sorry the prophet isaiah wrote this the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy And most importantly, Isaiah wrote in chapter 61 about the future work of the Messiah, what he would accomplish. He says this, 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And. This is what the Messiah was going to accomplish. And this is actually the text that Jesus pointed to when he began his ministry in Capernaum. In the synagogue when he was invited to read from the prophets. And he declared at that time that this passage was fulfilled in their midst. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah and I'm coming to establish my kingdom. And he went on to prove his messiahship through countless miracles. He turned water into wine. He walked on water. He turned, you know, fed thousands of people with just a few loaves and fishes twice. He did that. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He healed the lame. And he raised people from the dead. But the most emphatic proof that Jesus gave that he was the Messiah was by rising from the dead himself. As Paul says in Acts 17.31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, the, the fact that the Messiah would prove himself by performing many signs was what was expected. Because it was what was prophesied by the prophets. That's why people were looking for him to commit signs. What was not expected, though, was that the Messiah would be rejected by his people and eventually crucified. And, and Jesus knew it would not be expected. And that's why he explicitly told his disciples multiple times that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then on the third day, he would be rose again. Jesus told them that's what was going to happen. But even though he told them that was, it was going to happen, they didn't believe it. And even when it took place, they were shocked. Nobody expected the Messiah to die. Even when Jesus told them it would happen. And this is why Isaiah 53, which is the clearest prophecy about the suffering of the Messiah... This is why it begins this way in verse one. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom of has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Isaiah's point is nobody's going to expect what's going to happen. Nobody's going to believe that this is the servant of Yahweh. This is the Messiah. Because they had very different expectations about what the Messiah would look like and what the Messiah would actually do. What Jesus did shocked them. It was not what they expected. And I want to draw out the biblical principle that's expressed here. That God frequently does things that we do not expect. He frequently does things that we don't understand. And even when His purpose is revealed clearly to us, we have a hard time accepting it. We have a hard time letting go of what we think is best. Letting go of how we've planned our life. What we think is best for our families or for us as individuals or for what we think is best for our church or our nation. And, And when things don't go according to plan, even when we know that may not be God's will, we have a hard time letting go. But God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts as we read earlier. God is not like us. We are finite. We are fallen. We're often selfish and foolish and impatient. But God is all wise. He's all knowing. Infinitely patient. Perfectly just and right in what he does. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's not like us. And that's why he does things very different than we would expect. We tend to still think that that God should do things the way we fallen human creatures would do them. But it's a good thing He doesn't. And we see this, of course, in the life of Christ. And this is why Paul exults in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways In other words, you can't understand what God is up to Even when you think you understand, we don't really understand. Consider what Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed in Daniel chapter 4 after he was severely humiliated. He had gone from being the greatest man in all the world to, to living like an animal. And when his mind was restored to him, this is what he said... All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing in comparison to Yahweh. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And this was the main point of the book of Job. We have no clue what God is up to. But we know he's it's good because he is good his plans are perfect and right Job 37:23 the almighty we cannot find him he is great in power justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate and when christ was condemned by his own people and he was eventually crucified the disciples were at a loss to try and understand what in the world is going on. All their sacrifices appeared to be vain and wasted. I mean they, they trusted that Jesus was going to come in and establish his kingdom, but he was slaughtered. And you can just imagine their despair. I mean, they, they must have been wondering, how in the world has this happened? It was incredulity and despair that led Peter to deny his relationship with Christ three times. Because it wasn't what he thought was going to happen. And that's why he he quaked before a servant girl when she just asked him if he knew Jesus. His world was shattered. His his hope was crushed. And in, in that moment, to Peter and to all the rest of the disciples, it seemed that God's plan had failed. It seemed like he had abandoned them. The, 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 their worlds were coming apart at the seams. And they, they couldn't see past the moment they were in. But God was actually in the process of saving them, of redeeming them, of giving them blessings that were far beyond the greatest things they could ever have imagined. Blessings that would shatter their petty expectations of just having the kingdom of restored to Israel. He was doing far more. Many of you have just finished reading our book of the quarter to the Golden Shore, which is a biography of Ad and Iron Judson. You recall that there was when he was at the lowest point in his life, he went into the jungle just to be alone, and in his despair, he dug his own grave, and he just sat beside the grave meditating upon when he might die and just waited for death. And he wrote during this time, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. But Judson would soon see the hand of God just a year later because it was just after this period that God poured out his blessings upon Judson's ministry and spiritual fruit started to blossom in areas and amongst people he had no expectation. Evangelism exploded throughout Burma and it was just a year after this low point in his life when everything seemed at a loss. All of his effort waste. It serves to remind us of what William Cooper wrote Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a a, 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 a frowning providence, God shines a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter. and He will make it plain. And as Acts begins, the disciples are once again With Christ, they assume that finally now He's going to be with them forever. They think that they understand now what this coming kingdom is going to look like. But Jesus was only around 40 days following His resurrection. And it was because He still had greater plans. Plans that were far beyond what the disciples understood. And so during that time, those 40 days... He spent his time telling them about the coming kingdom. He was wanting to prepare them for this next stage in his ministry by teaching them about the kingdom. Because his kingdom was going to come in a way they didn't expect. And Luke also emphasizes in verse 2 that Jesus had given commands to his disciples by the Spirit, which makes us wonder well, what were these commands? Luke doesn't tell us explicitly. But the commands that are emphasized after Christ's resurrection center on the disciples' responsibility to proclaim the gospel to all nations. The rest of Acts actually records the disciples' fulfillment of this command, which is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, which is about to be poured out upon them. And this is the point of the next paragraph in chapter 1, the second stage of the coming kingdom when the spirit is poured out upon the nations although the fact that the messiah would suffer and die, die came as a surprise to the disciples the the fact that the holy spirit would be poured out upon them was not a surprise in fact they expected that to happen because it was made clear in the old testament The prophet Joel explained that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the people before the Messiah would take vengeance upon Israel's enemies. This is in Joel 2, 28 and 29. Peter's going to reference this in Acts chapter 2. The prophet Isaiah also said that the pouring out of the Spirit would immediately precede the permanent peace that the Messiah would bring in for Israel. Isaiah 32, 15. But the clearest indication... Of the pouring out of the Spirit on Israel is revealed in Ezekiel 36. And I want you to look at that passage. Ezekiel 36, where the coming of the Spirit would lead to wholehearted repentance of the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take from you. The nations and gather you from all countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. What what Ezekiel is saying is that when the Messiah comes, he will establish the kingdom upon the earth. And he will pour out the Holy Spirit upon all of the people. And they will all worship Yahweh as a nation. And so in chapter one, verse four of Acts, when Jesus tells them to wait for the promise of the father, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit many days from now. That wasn't shocking to them. They expected that the Holy Spirit's going to come just because the Holy Spirit comes with the coming of the Messiah. They rightly understood these texts to indicate the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. But there were two things that were not expected. The Jews didn't expect that they would actually kill their Messiah. And they didn't expect that on account of their rejection of the Messiah, that that Holy Spirit that was promised to them would actually be given to the Gentiles. Because they rejected their Messiah, the Jewish nation as a whole will receive the Holy Spirit that was promised by the Father when they confess and mourn their sin of rejecting Him. This is made clear in Zechariah 12.10. It, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the, habit, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy, so that when they look on Me, on whom on Him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When they recognize Christ as the Messiah, that's when they'll receive the Holy Spirit. So they eventually will repent, but not until they recognize Christ was the Messiah. Jesus was the Christ. And this won't happen, Jesus tells us, until the Good news of salvation is proclaimed to all the other nations first. Now, Jews still get first dibs in the proclamation of the Messiah. And this is why Paul made this explicit in his ministry. He also says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And so when Paul, as we see, we'll see in the book of Acts, He'd go into a new town, he'd preach in the synagogue to the Jews until they rejected his gospel and then he would turn to the Gentiles. And the fruit that Paul saw was primarily amongst the Gentile nations. Although it broke his heart that so few the Jews believed. As he writes in the book of Romans, he said he would rather be anathema if only his, his people would repent. Back in Acts 1, when Jesus tells his disciples that they're about to receive the Holy Spirit, again, they assume that means the kingdom is going to be established now. Jesus is going to exalt Israel and he's going to bring all of Israel's enemies into subjection underneath them. So they ask in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus wants them to know that His kingdom was going to be established in unexpected ways. That's why He responds to them the way He does. He doesn't answer their question. He doesn't tell them when He's going to begin to reign as king over them. Instead, He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. The Father is fixed by His own authority. Jesus then clarifies what He wants His disciples to focus on. You'll receive the Holy Spirit, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And he, he tells them what He wants them to focus on, not wondering how this kingdom is going to come at what time. But no, he wants them to be focused on what he's told, told them to do. Be focused on the commands that I've given you to fulfill. Do the work that will usher in the kingdom. As Jesus said in Matthew twenty four fourteen. this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come then the kingdom will be established. After the gospel is proclaimed to every people group, every ethnos, every, every tribe, tongue, and nation, when they hear the good news and have the opportunity to trust in Christ for salvation, as after the gospel has reached the ends of the earth, then the kingdom will come. Then the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon Israel as well. And this brings us to the third stage in the Messiah's coming kingdom, his return. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right, the key point in these verses is seen in the words of the angels to the disciples. What are you staring at? Why are you sticking around gazing with your mouths wide open into heaven? Christ is going to return. Right, the disciples are rebuked by the angels because they've been given a job to do. If you're looking forward to the Messiah, if your mind is focused, you're eager for to be with the Messiah, then be about the work the Messiah has told you to be about. Right? So it's similar like when after dinner you give instructions to your family. Following dinner we're going to clean up. I want you to do this, you do this, you do this. You give instructions on the cleaning up of the meal. And it's like crickets. Everybody's just kind of staring at one another. Nobody The meal's finished, but nobody gets up. Nobody starts the work. That's what these angels are explaining to the disciples. You've been given your instructions, and when you do those instructions, Christ will return. Don't stand there waiting for Christ. Be about the work of spreading the gospel. Christ will return after you finish your job. The same ammunition given to the disciples is still applicable to us today because he hasn't yet returned. And he hasn't yet returned because he's waiting for us to fulfill this commission. So what should we practically do? What should we be doing as a church in light of this? Because I know we want Christ to return. Well, obviously, we need to be praying and supporting missionaries who've made it their life endeavor to accomplish this commission. They need support. They need financial support. They need prayer support. They need encouragement. We need to make sure that we are regularly investing ourselves and thinking about this great command because it's when this command is fulfilled, Christ will come. Secondly, we need to be purposeful about evangelism in our own sphere. In a real sense, now more than ever, we're behind enemy lines. Most of the people in our nation are not in favor of Christianity or what it teaches. And there are many people, even in our own region, who, who have yet to understand the gospel, yet to understand the opportunity that is available to them, the forgiveness that's available to them. And there are fewer and fewer good churches in our region. And therefore, that means fewer and fewer gospel witnesses. Thirdly, we need to keep in mind that the great commission that God gave his disciples prior to his ascension was not just to preach and baptize. But it was also what was included in his commission was and teach they everything that I have commanded you. A major piece of evangelism is the growth of the church the growth of us as individuals because as we grow in Christ likeness as individuals as the church grows in Christ likeness it's a better witness it brings a better testimony there's more confidence there's more clarity in what you should share there's more boldness as we are more Christ like we're more effective and so a, A key piece of evangelism is your own pursuit of holiness, your own pursuit of understanding what the Bible teaches. The two are linked. But I know that as we take a step back and consider the work that still is yet to be done, it it can easily feel overwhelming. The work that needs to be done in our own lives and the work of seeing the gospel go to unreached people groups. It's easy to be discouraged. Especially when you think it's taken 2,000 years for this to happen. And so where do we start? In the face of our own slow spiritual growth and in the the slow spread of the gospel, where do we start? Because I think it's very easy because it's slow to just go, well, not today. Maybe tomorrow, but not today. It's so easy for people just, you know, when I'm better, when I feel stronger, when I have more energy, <laughs> when I'm older, when I'm younger, which won't happen. When I'm healthy. Where do we start? What do we each do now? Well, I think the answer to that question is actually the same answer for those who are facing severe discouragement in any area of their life not just in spiritual growth but any area the simple answer is just do the next thing that needs to be done just do the next thing and to support this counsel i want to draw on the advice of two well-known missionaries who both suggested that that was the key to their perseverance and the and the fruitfulness in their ministry. The first is William Carey. Who's known as the father of modern missions. And we was, at the end of his life. When he was asked by his nephew. Who, they, were, they were talking about. Who might write his biography of his life. This is how Carey responded. About his biographer. If he gives me credit for being a plotter. He will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this, I owe everything. Kerry says the secret to the success of his ministry was plotting. Doing the next thing that needed to be done. So how did he not give up? After arriving in India and losing his five-year-old son, after his wife went insane, after he was slandered by his colleagues to his mission agency so that he he had his support cut off because of lies, after losing 20 years worth of work, 20 years worth of translation work in one day because of a fire that broke out in a warehouse. How did he not give up, he just did the next thing and he plodded on. And likewise, Elizabeth Elliot, in the wake of the loss of her husband, Jim, found great strength in this poem about doing the next thing. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. It's quaint Saxon legend deeply engraven. hath it seems to me teaching from heaven. And on through the doors the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Many a questioning. Many a fear. Many a doubt. It's quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care and do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command, stayed with omnipotence, safe near neath his wing, leave all the results. Do the next thing. Looking for Jesus, ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy song. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. Brothers and sisters, let's do the next thing. Father, we want to be faithful. We, we know We know we haven't been as faithful as we should. The fact that Christ is not yet here is evidence of that. The work, there's so much work to be done in our own hearts, in the church, in the world. And God, we feel so weak. And it's so hard. The work is so hard. And so, give us each guidance to know what we should be doing, that we would each do the next thing before us, that works to bring about your purposes, that works to bring about your will, whether that's a conversation or a confrontation, whether it's praying or preaching, whether it's serving, whether it's staying or going. Whether it's crying or holding, comforting or challenging, Lord, give us wisdom. Spirit, lead us to be fruitful in the work that you've called us to do. And give us guidance to do the next thing. Come. Lord, quickly.